Good morning. I'm Felicia King, and you're listening to Breakfast Bites. On today's show, we are going to talk about the new model that you need to be utilizing if you're going to have viable endpoint protection. And if you don't know what endpoint protection is, that's okay. I'll explain it. So let's get started. We first have to actually think about things in terms of value, right? We don't have computers just for the sake of having computers because they're fun. No, it's because we need them to do things. We need them to do business functions, personal functions, online banking, all kinds of good things, right? So we have some fundamental underlying assumptions for the use of technology. Let's discuss those in brief because they're the baseline foundational worldview that we all have about technology that then leads us into the logical conclusion as to how do you achieve that. All right. So first off, we have computing assets, whether it be an internet connection, a smartphone, a Windows computer, a Mac computer, right? We have these things because we care about the confidentiality, the integrity, and the availability of the data and the systems that are stored on and accessed by that particular computing platform. So maybe we're talking about email, your online banking, maybe it's your classwork for your MBA, Right? But fundamentally, we care about the confidentiality, integrity, and availability. They call this the CIA triad, and not like in a bad way, not like the CIA, right? <laughs> but like in the confidentiality, integrity, and availability of the data stored on and accessed by those computing platforms that you use. Okay. Now, that's our fundamental assumption. We want security. We don't want the data to be getting compromised. We don't want it to be getting corrupted in transit or in store, and we want it to be available. How do you achieve that? Well, newsflash for all of you, if this isn't obvious already, but the primary actors of perpetrating hacks and damage now are actually nation-state actors. Yes, granted, there definitely are still hackers that work for large, financially, heavily subsidized criminal enterprise. I mean, it's actually much more lucrative to engage in Medicare fraud by the uh, cartels than it is to actually move drugs. It's way less risky, too, because there's drastically less enforcement and investigation for Medicare fraud as compared to, you know, drug trafficking or human trafficking. So the criminal enterprises plus sole operators engaging in criminal behavior, as well as nation state actors, they're all just working on this 24-7, 365. And believe you me, when I tell you they basically have unlimited budgets. Because the criminal actors, they never have to pay taxes on anything. They don't have to report their earnings. Right? They're not regulated. They're all running dark operations. They don't have to comply with regulations. They don't have any of that administrative overhead that you do when you're looking at doing your accounting and tax compliance and anything like that. Right? And certainly the nation state actors, they've got unlimited budgets. So this is literally what you're up against. 
I saw a recent statistic that said that the average household now in the United States is subject to over 100 hacks, 100 hack attempts per month. Per month. <laughs> oh my. Right? And now I actually think that number is low because if I look at the quantity of attempted hacks just simply at the network layer, we're literally talking about thousands per day. I mean, thousands per day, sometimes tens of thousands per day. And that's going to be true at a, at a household level as well. So I believe that the statistic that they were coming up with was driven not just based upon external hack attempts, but literally hack attempts driven through of vectors other than just simply trying to break the WAN interface protection vector of your firewall. So, you know, hack attempts that involve things like all these fraud phone calls that you get, spear phishing and phishing emails, uh, attempts to trick you to download malware, or in some cases they've actually managed to execute malware on the endpoints because of systems that aren't patched and aren't set up correctly. That's pretty much it. You can even have reasonably decent network layer security inspection, and it's not going to catch everything if a person still has administrative access and then they engage in operator overhead error, uh, especially if they're falling prey to a targeted attack, then it's kind of game over for them when they open the door and allow the bad stuff in. So something that is a quite heavily perpetrated thing against not only businesses, but also even households is they'll send you an email. And this is more common with consumer grade email services rather than business grade email services, because the business grade email services that are professionally run, they tend to have better content filtering that would just block this kind of garbage. But it's so it's way more, you know, prevalent in the consumer grade email systems, but they'll send this nasty email and it looks, it can look quite legitimate and quite enticing. And it'll say something like, oh, you know, thank you for your order for this, you know, giant new television. And, you know, if you didn't order this TV, well, then, you know, call this number. And then you're like, well, I didn't order a TV. And so what do you do? You call the phone number. Well, please, people do not call the phone number. Okay, this is part of a scam where they're trying to get you. If you actually call that phone number, you're going to get on the phone with a hacker who's going to then try and get you to download some junk on your computer that will actually hack your computer. And then they will use that to get access to your email and potentially hack your bank account. Oh, yeah, this is what they're after. They're after your bank account. They're after your email content, all your data, your data and what they can do with it is more valuable even than your bank account. Your email contents, if they have access to your email at all, even for a very, very short period of time, they've probably downloaded the entire contents of that email system. And then they're going to go through that at their leisure and decide who else they can perpetrate attacks against as part of your chain of trust, who are your contacts and so forth. So it just squirrels from there. So that's what you're up against. And I'm going to be very blunt here in that 
it is getting to the point where it is absolutely impossible for a residential user who is a consumer scenario or even a small business who is trying to do this stuff on their own, if they are not partnered with a high-end security architect, they're going to be basically naked. I mean, just absolutely naked on the interstate, you know, with thousands of cars driving by, smacking them on the backside. And there, I've got a list of the 21 things you should be asking your IT service provider. And if your IT service provider cannot provide viable answers to those 21 questions, then you probably shouldn't be using them as your IT service provider. And this becomes extremely important when you're dealing in the business-to-business space, that you have a, a methodology of vetting. Now, bluntly, I will also tell you that if you're going to actually work with a high-quality, high-security provider, they're not going to be cheap. Those two things do not go hand-in-hand. You know, you're not getting, like, budget services and then somehow expecting to have stellar, top-notch solutions with rapid response. Okay, those two things just, it's, it's not possible. Uh, this gets into also a realm of what is uh, SOC and NOC. Well, SOC is a security operations center and NOC is a network operations center. NOC is generally associated with things like patching, monitoring, maintenance versus SOC is generally associated with incident response, incident and alert analysis, evaluation, response, and proactive security configuration management. Now, what you probably don't realize is that there are so many variants of how to do that, that you're literally talking about the difference between like a medical generalist, like an internist versus a brain surgeon. And, you know, you as a business decision maker or as a consumer really have no way of delineating and discerning when you're looking at IT service providers as to whether or not they can do those things effectively. There are very, very few people that actually have that skill set. And there's, even if you look at the, the national managed ser- security services provider market, there's maybe only 10% of all MSSPs nationwide that have that kind of skill set. Then you're getting into the whole realm of, is that what I need? Do I need to pay for it? Well, the answer is, yeah, there's a certain baseline you have to achieve. Absolutely. Or you're just, again, you know, naked on the interstate. And but getting to that whole point where you've made you've you've found the right formula that works for you in your context, in your scenario, getting those right parts and pieces in place with the right strategy, with the right plan to maintain that. That's an art form. And that's actually, that's my speciality is consulting with businesses and and even individuals and helping them achieve that context that's actually the right fit for them. Because it's not inexpensive to do this. Uh, And if you try to work exclusively with an organization who, you know, they just work with consumers, then that's the only answer you're ever going to get. And bluntly, the consumer grade technologies, they don't work. That's just it. I mean, they're not sophisticated enough. 
Even many of the technologies that are designed for the managed services industry don't really work that well either. It's some kind of, you know, insider baseball in our industry. The really smart folks out there are using enterprise class solutions and strategies because that does work. In the vast majority of time, uh, enterprise class strategies do work. Okay, so that's some generalities. Now, let's move on into what can we do then or what do we need to do as an the new strategy here in the end of 2020, going into 2021, looking at where the threats are coming from and what is now going to be an efficacious strategy so that we can continue to have confidentiality, integrity, and availability for the technology systems that we rely upon. Okay. It actually is ridiculously complicated, but it's easier than you think. So it's it's not possible for you to come up with these things on your own. I think the main element is to find a partner that you can work with that'll do this. But the point of the Breakfast Bites show is to educate you so that you can be making informed decisions and assessing risk for yourself and deciding what strategy you might want to take. So here are the necessary components of an endpoint protection solution that's actually efficacious, meaning it's effective. You need, you need to have endpoint protection platform that has a zero trust posture. Okay, zero trust posture. This is a completely different approach. And to my knowledge, there are very few, maybe less than five products on the market worldwide right now that actually work properly when you look at it from a zero trust posture. There's quite a lot of hubbub over products. Well, let's, let's take Sentinel-1. I'll just pick on Sentinel-1 for an, an example. There are so many variants to Sentinel-1's product line. And depending upon who's actually providing Sentinel-1's product line and what feature sets and what subscription licensing you have and all of this, you know, you may have a competently managed product that's highly effective or you may have the wrong licensing or you may have the right licensing with an incompetently managed product. You know, it just depends on who who's supplying it to you, what configuration it is that they're using in that. So, you know, you can't even make a statement that says, oh, yeah, go get Sentinel-1. Well, Sentinel-1 what? That's the issue here. It's when I, you know, when I said this stuff is ridiculously complicated, I am not underselling it in any way. <laughs> okay. So there's a handful of products out there that are using the correct security posture paradigm now, and that is a zero trust posture paradigm. But it's also then gotta be coupled with EDR and MDR technologies. Okay, so <clears throat> EDR is endpoint detection and response, and MDR is managed detection and response. So managed detection and response is this element where the telemetry data from the agent on the endpoint is getting sent to a 24 by seven staffed data center of guys who are monitoring this data and they're trained specifically to look at these things and they're going to correlate that data with other things. And they do a threat hunting investigation service and the managed detection and response is that if they see something that is an indicator of compromise, they have the ability to send an endpoint isolation command. 
So that's really important. And how this is actually effectuated is incredibly important because we have to be very, very conscious about counterparty risk and transitive trust agreement issues. So you have to be asking the question, if I put this agent on my computer, exactly who can do what to my computer? Now, if your IT service provider has a small team of individuals who are highly securely trained and they don't outsource and they're the only ones that have admin access to your systems, that could be okay. But boy, that's something you've got to find out. Now, if you use an outsourced SOC agent on your computer, does that end up meaning that a a SOC team in California or in Israel or in Mumbai also now has full administrative access to your endpoint? You'll find that the vast majority of IT service providers, when they actually meet with you, the people that they send to meet with you don't actually have the technical skill to answer that question. And they may just outright lie to you. And that's because they either don't know or they really don't want to tell you. There are some, there, there's actually a whole lot of outsourced knock and sock that are out there. And a lot of them just do not pass the security assessment test. In fact, I was on the phone with a friend of mine who's a security expert in Australia this week, earlier this week. And he and I were having this discussion about how Right now, we're not aware of any outsourced knocks that are financially accessible, meaning they're accessible to parties outside of the enterprise space. We're not aware of any outsourced knocks that are even available on the market to outsource to who pass what we deem to be adequate level of security muster, meaning we're not comfortable outsourcing to them for anything. And Some of this comes from a lot of these organizations feel that in order for them to scale, so they feel like people won't adopt their service if their service isn't commodity level cheap. So the only way they feel they can do that is by ignoring security controls and setting up a situation where security best practices that have been known for 20 plus years really are not followed. And when you have conversations with them, they'll say something like, oh, yeah, we've got 30 or 60 people that can all do this job. And they're, you know, they're using the same shared credentials. And when you use shared credentials, doing multi-factor authentication is very problematic. And besides the fact you don't have any tracking, besides the fact that shared credentials are a big, bad regulatory no-no. So if you've outsourced to one of these organizations, you now not cannot pass, pass your security assessment and the risk to your organization is increased instead of decreased, which was the whole point of outsourcing to a knock. <laughs> you see the vicious, ridiculous complexity of all of this. It's impossible to navigate it unless this is what you do full time for a living. So what do you do then? Well, I think your only option really is to go find an IT service provider and then just go interrogate them on the 21 points and then find out, can you afford their services? You know, do they outsource? What do they outsource? Because everybody outsources something. Are they outsourcing exclusively licensing provisioning? The question you really have to be deeply asking is, if I work with you, who has what administrative access 
to any of my data that's stored anywhere? That is the number one top question. Do not get sucked into the idea of thinking that a service level agreement is important or a you know, response time contract is important. Because I've seen providers who are charging $120,000 a year with a $350,000 capital budget for a single client, by the way, who have just horrifically bad security practices. But their big selling proposition is, oh, we've got a 24 by 7 help desk. Well, it doesn't mean anything at all if your back-end security practices are terrible. And be very, very wary about anybody that says that they're air quote vendor agnostic. That's just that's just more horse hockey. So vendor agnosticism is really, I'm only aware of one company that could effectuate that strategy in reality. And that happens to be the largest managed service provider in the entire world that's owned by one of the guys that's on Shark Tank. And the reason that he can say that his business is vendor agnostic is because he has enough people in his employ who have certifications in every known technology that exists. So in reality, he's not vendor agnostic. In reality, his business is just able to support everything under the sun. Okay, (laughs) that's different than saying vendor agnostic. So if somebody comes to you and says, oh, yeah, we're vendor agnostic and that's our sales proposition, that just means that they don't really that they're well, they're lying to you because I guarantee you that they have a preferred vendor for every piece of technology that they have. They definitely have a preferred network layer security appliance vendor and an EPP vendor, et cetera, et cetera. So they're not really vendor agnostic. They're just they're just misleading you. And. What it does mean, though, is that if you're using or you want to continue to utilize a platform or technology that is not on their, you know, top number one list that they have all these people certified in, in terms of supporting it, then that just means that it's just going to cost you a tremendous amount of money because they don't really have anybody on staff that knows how to competently manage that solution. So generally what they'll do is they'll just defeat all the security protections that's in that thing. So you have to you have to be extremely careful when you go and switch providers. I have seen probably 15 different vendor switches over the years and in 100% of cases the party that took over when it was not my firm by the way, the party that took over, like we are anal retentive about blocking out the former provider. I mean, that's my number one top priority when we come in is like, that's it. You know, like everything is getting shut down to the point where there is no possible way that the former provider could have any access into anything that they're no longer supposed to have access to. But it takes work and it takes a heck of a lot of skill to get that done. But in the rest of the cases, where somebody's taken over from us, either because we got rid of the client or whatever the issue is, because, yeah, newsflash for you all, we don't all want to work with everybody. <laughs> Sometimes people just become so difficult to work with that you really don't want to work with them anymore. And then you have to part ways. And in those cases, I continue to find years and years and years later, 
passwords haven't been changed, access to systems is still available, we're still getting email notifications from systems. I mean, it literally takes a situation where the hardware, where the configuration was that was sending us the detail, including automated reports on a monthly or weekly basis, I might add, that continue to reveal to us a bunch of information that we shouldn't be seeing anymore. But again, I don't control those systems, so I can't stop it from being sent to us. That the provider that took over, they have, they're just so clueless that they just allow those things to continue to go on. And so the only time I see that type of stuff shut actually shut off is when they just like, okay, well, we don't understand this system, so we're just going to take it out. And that's when the stuff you know, that's when it stops is when those systems where the, the configs were, they're just, you know, gutted and removed. But now what has that financially done to that company? So first off, it certainly left them to be wide open that entire t- period of time. You know, there's some sort of a vulnerability that's existing there, even if it's just simply uh, information disclosure that shouldn't be happening. But if they, you know, if the customer doesn't have faith well, I mean, and they wouldn't know, right? But if they don't know for fact that the IT service provider has disabled the, everything from being able to leak data or, you know, access, then they're literally faced with a situation where they have to go through everything and just gut it all and redo it from scratch, which is horrifically expensive. And by the way, <laughs> simply coming up with an inventory about what all you have and where all your accounts are, oh boy, that is one heck of an endeavor if you were not obsessively organized for all those prior years. And I've never walked into a situation that was pre-organized before my team walked in. It's always been a situation where we're the ones who put up the identity and access management server and we're the ones that build the documentation. You know, we're the ones that actually build a checklist of what needs to happen if the IT admin personnel changes. We have procedures for those things. These don't exist before we show up. So, you know, if some other service provider took over from us, hmm, do they have those procedures? Probably not. So back to this whole, you know, EPP EDR strategy. Take a very, very, very hard look at what you're using for endpoint protection and endpoint strategy now. If you are not applying all Windows patches, all third-party patches within maximum of seven days of the patch's release, preferably within 48 hours of the patch's release. If you do not have an EPP EDR product that is taking a zero-trust posture, if it is not coupled with a managed detection and response threat hunting service that is staffed 24 by 7 by intelligent trained personnel, if it isn't backed by a sock and knock who knows you, who knows your business, knows your assets, knows what you're doing with those systems, and who actually genuinely cares about you, which by the way, I'll tell you something else. There's an awful lot of people out there whose give a hoot button seems to be broken. Yeah. It's really, it's a sad state of affairs. I call it the give a hoot button. (laughs) They don't give a hoot. And so then they're, you know, when you press the button, their give a hoot button is broken. So 
think about these things. And if you do actually have a high quality service provider who's coming to you and saying, you know, look, there's a whole new security practice and tactic. And you were formerly on kind of a, a weaker strategy because you were very budget oriented before. Your costs may end up doubling for that solution, if not tripling in 2021. And that is what it's going to take to get the job done. Otherwise, you're naked on the interstate. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed it. As always, feel free to uh, contact me on the website, qualityplusconsulting.com.